This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Oli Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. I'm very excited about today's episode as we are going to talk about validation studies, future analysis methods of sedentary behavior and physical activity. Our guest is working as an associate professor at Alma College in Michigan, U.S. He has studied the accuracy and reliability of various physical activity monitors and also used them as intervention tools to help individuals become more physically active. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm honored to introduce our guest, Dr. Alexander Montoya, for second time to this podcast. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Ali. I'm excited to be here and talk with you today. Nice to have you. So I was looking your publication list and between 2020 and 2022, you have authored 19 papers that are either validation or algorithms to analyze activity. So you clearly know about validations. How, how do you see the current state of validating new ways of measuring sedentary behavior and physical activity? Is there is there something that usually goes wrong in the validation? Is there something that could be improved in, in methods? It's a great question. And it's an interesting time to be in this field because over the last 10 years, we've seen dramatically increased, uh, increased interest in device-based measurement of activity. So even though accelerometer technology has been around for, I think it's now about 40 years, it's really been in the last decade or so as the technology has improved, as the device size has shrunk, batteries last longer, and also the advent of the consumer wearables has really increased interest in space. And so as we think about validating, we, we're learning a lot. And so the way we try to validate uh, both devices as well as algorithms that go with the, the devices has shifted over time, certainly since I've been in the field um, and, and even you know for longer than that. We're, we're learning a lot. And so I think our, our, our ways of validating things is getting better. I think what we're learning about some of the critical, like minimal things you should do in any validation study is is becoming maybe a little bit more concrete as well. But then also as we as we as we learn these things, there are new challenges that always that always pop up too. And so that's part of the fun is it's a constantly changing field and we have to continue to learn and, and continue to adapt to be able to validate devices. And and when you said that we probably have now the minimal things that you you need to have. What would you say that are the the minimal things in validations? Yeah, so there's there's a couple that I would suggest. One is that we there's a realization that we can't just use a laboratory setting to understand how a device will work. And there are a lot of reasons to use a laboratory setting. So I'm not suggesting that we eliminate that but we can't just use laboratory settings to try to understand how devices will function in the real world. People don't move in a lab like they move in the real world, and we don't allocate our time the same way in a laboratory setting when you're being told what to do as compared to when we are in the real world. And so validation studies, good validation studies should have some free living component. 
even if that's just a, a cross validation, that's kind of a, a minimum. Ideally, you would have part of the actual validation or development of the device that happens in a free living environment too. Um, in either of those cases, that means that you have to get criterion data in free living, which is, is challenging. You have to have a ground truth against which to compare uh, the, the device outputs. And so that's, that's obviously a challenge. That's why we don't do it in the field as often. Uh, you know, the, if you're looking at calories, you have to have a portable metabolic analyzer. If you're looking at steps, you have to somehow get a true criterion for steps. And so some people have used cameras, video cameras that they mount and then point toward the ground so you can see foot strikes. Or if you're looking at activity type or activity intensity, there are a number of ways you can do that. Again, you can use a camera to try to understand the activity somebody's doing. We in our lab have done some validations where we've ha we've um, essentially had students follow our participants around with an iPad or a, a tablet and then use a, an activity tracking software to real-time record what the person's doing and, and get an estimate of the intensity of the activity. And so when you move into the free living, it poses huge challenges in terms of what your criterion measure is, but you need to have free living data to really understand how well, how and how well these devices are going to work to measure the metrics that they, that they're capturing. And so I would say that's a really, really important kind of a minimal thing is to have probably data from both settings. I would say both a free living setting, but also a, uh, some kind of a laboratory component as well have to think about the criterion measures. Uh, the sample itself, both the size of the sample, so how many participants you you get, as well as what those participants look like. So how old are they? Um, you know, is there a diversity in terms of fitness level or in terms of the types of activities that the people will perform is going to affect who that validation is representative of or can be confidently applied to. And so we have to consider that for carefully when we are uh, sharing our, our validation or, our, or you know, developing our plans for validation. That doesn't suggest that you have to have all populations in a validation or a cross-validation. It just means that whoever is your sample, that's really the only population we can confidently apply our results to. And so acknowledging that is part of our validation, I think, is important. An another thing I'll mention is when we when we're doing, uh, especially when we think about model development, so not necessarily device development, but when you're developing cut points, when you're developing machine learning models or other advanced analytic approaches, I don't know that I would say this is universally agreed upon, but certainly our group has pushed for some kind of transparency or sharing of the models that get developed. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that, you know, it doesn't matter how good your models are. If nobody else can access them, they will never get used. They won't actually be deployed for understanding behavior. And so we have to provide a way for other individuals, and ideally individuals who aren't experts in coding and those types of things, to be able to use these, to implement these models in some way. And so, you know, maybe the, the, the best way to do that, if it was possible, would be to work with device companies and get these models incorporated into their software so that you, you know, if you want to use this model, it's a point and click process or it's a fairly simple coding process to get these models deployed. Uh, but that can only happen if the researchers who are developing the models are sharing them somehow. So providing example code, example data, those types of things so that they can get used. I think that's a really important 
apart, uh, that also allows the device or the models to be cross-validated. So if we want to understand how they'll work in a different population or a different setting, we can cross-validate those. And then eventually end users can actually deploy them. So I would say those are some of the, maybe some of the main things. Uh, I could, it, there's lots of other maybe minor points, but we can, uh, those will probably come up later. Yeah. So, so if I go with the criterion that you mentioned in free living, how many studies, how, how big percentage of studies actually have a free living criterion? I think it's pretty, pretty low. It's pretty small. Yeah. I know of a few research groups who, who do it fairly routinely, but yeah, it, it's, it's fairly limited because it's incredibly hard to do. I mean, just to give you an example, so a few years ago, I decided I was going to collect a free living, free living data set. And so we, I hired two, two undergraduate students and, and, uh, that was their job. They were getting paid by the hour to, to be, you know, these, um, in the field criterion measures. Uh, so they underwent pretty extensive training. So we needed them to be able to confidently and, and reliably report behaviors that people were doing that were consistent, not only with themselves, but also between the two of them. And so we recorded a bunch of videos of people doing things. And then I would code them. Some of my grad students would code them and then the undergrads would code them. And they had to reach certain levels of agreement with us before they could move on to the next video. So it was pretty extensive training. Um, I think it was four videos and each video was anywhere from 30 minutes to a couple hours. And, um, and so just that process was pretty extensive, getting the observers trained. We had to then collect the data itself. And so we ended up, uh, we ended up recruiting 30 people and we followed them for eight hours each. So that was what, 240 hours of following people around. That was just to get the data. Then we had to analyze the data. And the, the, the data that comes off of the, the software that we were using was pretty labor intensive to analyze. I mean, it took us, I think, about a year to clean stuff, troubleshoot issues that happen in the field. You know, we did this study in the summer. And so one of the things we anticipated with our tablets is that they might get depleted of battery. So we had, you know, external chargers and cords on hand. What we didn't anticipate was that the um, devices might overheat. So if any time that our participants were outside and our observers were out in direct sunlight, the iPads had a propensity to overheat. And then we had to essentially pause and restart. So we had all kinds of issues, right? I mean, it's, it's your standard research design when you're out in the field. And so this was an incredibly labor-intensive process to get the data, but also then to analyze the data. And so it, it, it is a very intimidating prospect to, to try to implement a free-living component in these types of analyses. Um, and there's not really a better alternative. I mean, if you use a video camera, you'll have a lot of the same issues. What happens if the video camera battery dies? Um, some of them are video cameras, and some are they're actually just... Um, they take pictures, you know, so like every 15 seconds, the device will take a picture. That's great, but over the course of a day, then that means you're analyzing 6,000 pictures to understand the place the people are, the likely activity type and the likely intensity. And that's for one person for one day. And so there's not a low burden or a low effort criterion measure that exists in the field. And so it becomes a very, very labor intensive task to analyze that data. And so that's a, that's a fairly big barrier to, to doing these types of studies. I mean, I just, I did it the one time and, uh, but you know, I guess knowing that 
it's important to plan them so that you can get as much use out of that data as possible. So, you know, what we did with that data set is we strapped up the people with a bunch of activity monitors. You know, they had wrist-worn devices, thigh-worn devices, hip-worn devices. And so we knew this wasn't just one study we were going to be able to do, right? And so we've, I think we've published eight or nine papers off of that, off of that uh, data set. And so while the data collection and analysis process is very labor intensive, you do get good value out of it if you plan it right. And you, you know, you try to set it up to be able to answer multiple different kinds of questions. And and would you see there's some some midway, like many of the validation studies are done in a lab in a pretty simple way that you walk on a treadmill with different speeds and and that you could maybe also do it in a lab that you simulate normal daily life, for example, that you actually have a have a sofa, you have a kitchen and you you have different things there. Of course, maybe you cannot go outside, but you could you could do like normal day there people could watch movies there would be a tv uh, how, how do you see the mid mid crowd because yeah not many people are willing and have time and resources to do like you did yeah that's probably the most common thing right now we call it either semi-structured or simulated pre-living and so it's exactly as you described you are in a laboratory setting but you set up the laboratory with things that people could do in their everyday life. So we've done, I've done three or four of these types of studies, the the semi-structured setting. So yeah, we bring in a broom, we bring in a, a cot, we bring in a couch and have a TV and a computer set up. Um, we make sure we have a sink somewhere so they can wash dishes, right? Those, all those kinds of things. And so they're in a lab, they're in a room, but they can do more activities than just treadmill walking, jogging, stationary cycling. You know, the, some of the activities you would see in your standard, maybe a, a some of the initial validation protocols from the 90s or early 2000s. There's a lot of value in the semi-structured setting because the other thing you can do in the lab is you can mandate mandate, excuse me, certain minimum amounts of time that people engage in certain activities. Uh, one of the things that didn't mention with the free living setting, but one big limitation is that people spend most of their day doing a fairly small number of activities in free living. You know, I mean, the average adult spends, what, 65 to 70% of their time sedentary. So you're capturing lots of variations on sitting in the free living, but very, very little, if any, engagement in things like moderate to vigorous intensity activity. You're not going to see, unless you unless you uh, observe a very specific population, you won't see sport movements. Uh, you're not likely to see something like swimming. You know, like there's just there's just so many activities you don't see in the free living, and so your devices can't assess those behaviors, or at least we are not confident they can assess those behaviors because we don't have validation data on those types of activities. And so the free living setting is not perfect either because you get a lot of data that's redundant in the sedentary behaviors and then little to no data in some of the really important behaviors that we know are health enhancing, right? And and so the simulated setting gives you some control to say, and what we've done in some of our studies is say, okay, you know, the average adult spends 65% of their time sedentary. In the lab setting, we are going to say that you should spend at least 50% sedentary. So there's still that type of an element. But you can also say, you know, within your day, you need to spend at least 30 minutes doing moderate intensity activities here's a list of six things you can do in our laboratory setting that would count as that. And if you want to do more, you certainly can, but at least 
we know we're going to capture a certain amount of that behavior that we really want to be able to measure when we deploy these in a field setting, right? Or So there's all different options that you can do in a lab that you just don't have as much control over in the in the free living. So I certainly think there's value to both. And that's hopefully I conveyed that well in the initial part, which was to say that I think probably a combination of settings is important. So the simulated setting allows you to guarantee that you're capturing some of those behaviors we know we want to see in the field. And then the field gives you more of that real world context for how people actually live. You know, I mean, sitting, even things like sitting in a lab, what we've noticed is that like, you know, people always sit in the same chair. So the chair height will be the same. The posture somebody will adopt in that chair will be very similar versus if you're sitting in different chairs across different settings, that might look different. Things like stationary cycling, which is the only thing you can do in a lab, looks very different than cycling outside because you don't have the vibrations from the ground. You're not stopping or turning. Uh, you're not hitting potholes or whatever else exists out there. And so cycling, the, the accelerometer signal cycling outside actually looks quite different than cycling on a stationary bike. And so there are some things you just can't simulate well in a, a lab setting. So having both, again, thinking perfect world, if you have both, that's really the ideal scenario. And and how, how would you see validating is it is challenging? What are the result variables that are differing the most between lab and free living and what should researchers kind of make when they are checking a for example lab validation what should they be thinking what what, what should be the course and what should be the critical thinking there yeah good question so is so your question is uh what things what findings from the lab generally translate to free living and what things generally don't yeah is that the, is that the yeah. question yeah that's a really that's a good one so I would say, you know, the the recognition of sedentary behaviors is generally pretty good because, you know, I mean, machine learning models are black box, so you don't really know how they work, but we can anticipate that sedentary behavior is unique in the, you know, relative non-movement that you're going to see. So very low acceleration patterns or stable or stable orientation of a device. Those things are likely to translate well. Uh, between between settings and you're getting good vault you know you're getting good amounts of data in both settings on that type of behavior yeah under seeing how people do the movement activities there's going to be more variability in the field or in the true free living than in the lab and so it's probably going to depend a bit on how well you simulated that in your lab setting to see how well those things translate out one interesting thing we've seen with um, with step, counting is uh, we have seen opposite effects in the field and in the lab setting. So in, uh, for example, with um, non-ambulatory activities, things like sweeping or vacuuming, those types of things, people's devices tend to overcount steps. Um, you know, you have arm, I should say with a wrist device, if you have a wrist device and you're doing activities, washing dishes, you know, whatever it is, you have arm movement without stepping they tend to overestimate those types of activities. And you see that in a laboratory setting where you can count those well. And so you would anticipate then that in people who do a lot of chore-based activities uh, like that, or a lot of activities that involve arm movement without leg movement, you would see an overestimation of step counts based on our lab data. And in the field, we actually don't see that, at least with a lot of our analyses. Um, and you actually see a, a sometimes underestimation of, of step counts. So yeah, it doesn't, some variables don't necessarily translate outside of the laboratory setting as well. 
and some are a little bit better. And it's a little bit population specific too. And how, how would you say the, the validations done done on, on treadmill, like just speeding up the treadmill different mm-hmm. intensities? How would you see the intensity validation differs between free living and, and the treadmill? Yeah, it's a it's a good uh, that's a that's a good question too. So, if all you're doing in a laboratory setting is a treadmill validation, um, and you're using and you're using let's say let's say you're using traditional cut point approaches, so you've got somebody hooked up to a metabolic analyzer, and you say, okay, you know, four thousand counts is the threshold for moderate intensity activity, and eleven thousand is the threshold for vigorous intensity activity. Those tend to overestimate. So no, those tend to Uh, underestimate the amount of physical activity people do if they're applied in a field setting because other activities that involve less well-defined walking or you know ambulatory behavior probably have a higher energy cost than the counts that you're getting from them so if all you did was a pure treadmill validation in a lab you'll probably get an underestimation of activity in the field setting but the the opposite is true unfortunately also which is that and we've seen a lot of studies now that do these simulated pre-living validations in a, in a lab. And so you're capturing more of the activities that have a relatively high energy expenditure for the, the amount of movement that's done. And if you tran- if you do too many of those activities, the thresholds for MVPA, moderate and vigorous activity, get set too low. And then when you go out in a field setting, you see people accruing huge amounts of MVPA because the threshold is so low because of the activities you did in the in the lab setting. And so I don't know if I have a great insight on how you do that other than you can't do purely one or the other of those, yeah. For most sedentary behavior and physical activity researchers, collecting the research data is one of the most frustrating steps of a project, especially as inefficient data collection steals too much of your precious time causes unnecessary stress and hassle, and can easily derail progress of your project. This is why we devised a revolutionary new way to collect data, introducing Fibian Sense Motion, the beginning of a new era. Fibian Sense Motion is a cutting-edge next-generation system that allows you to easily and remotely collect, store, and manage data. Our solution features a tiny, waterproof device that captures the sedentary behavior and physical activity data, a mobile app for automatic uploading of the data from the device, and a cloud service for managing the data. Even better, all collected data is GDPR compliant, and you have access to automatically analyzed variables of activity types and raw 3-axis accelerometer data. Don't compromise on the quality of your research or the project timeframes. Discover the convenience and power behind our solution at sense.fibian.com. That is S-E-N-S dot Fibian, created by researchers for researchers. Yeah, no, no, good, good points. It's, it's not very easy to do validations. Uh, and, and when you said about the representativeness of the, of the group, like there's a lot of variation. People are of different age, people are of different weight, weight, uh, body mass index and, and different health conditions. What would you think is kind of the good range to have in a validation that you would have representativeness, but 
not like too too wide that they they would be kind of pinpointed yeah that's a good question again it's going to come back it's going to come down to who do you want these models to apply to so what's the population you're hoping to apply the models to the i think the main thing that i have done in my own work is specifically looking for certain ages or age ranges so for example in that in that uh free living study I told you about with the 30 individuals, we took 10 individuals who are between 18 and 40 years old, 10 who are between 40 and 60, and then 10 who are uh, above the age of 60 to make sure we had some age representativeness. I think probably what would be a more effective way to uh, recruit in a way that, that we would ensure uh, that the, the, the models, or at least we know how the models will work across a diverse sample is to sample by fitness level. Um, and so age kind of does that, especially when you look at older individuals, you know, a 60 year old is in all likelihood will have a lower cardiorespiratory fitness level than an 18 year old will. And so age kind of did that for us, but I think that fitness level is really going to be more representative of what types of activities people do. And so, um, that then age per se would be. And so I think sampling on fitness level, whether that's doing a, you know, a VO2 max estimation or whether you do a true maximal exercise test in order to make sure you're getting a diversity in your sample uh, would probably be a more effective way than what we've done. Yeah. And if I go a little bit back in the beginning, you said that you can validate the devices and you can validate the algorithms. Usually you, you do kind of both at the same time. How important do you see that the device is validated for example the raw data how much there is difference between different manufacturers raw data if you're using the same algorithms in the same way yeah so are you thinking like between two different brands of devices yeah yeah so there's some mixed evidence in the field as to how those function from from my understanding i'm, I'm not a device developer although we i did when i very first started in the field we did i did work with an engineering group to to um, produce some actual devices my understanding is that the device developers for the most part use similar brands of, of sensor the accelerometer sensor that exists within the devices so my guess is that the raw data in most cases is probably fairly similar now um that's not to say it's identical. I know there there are a few inner device differences across certain brands that are that are relatively well understood. I think um, interestingly, and I didn't know this until talking to a device developer. Even within the so the accelerometer sensor, something about the engineering process, certain axes of the devices are going to more reliably measure signal than others, and so. Um, and I, I I don't understand the engineering of this at all, but you essentially at some level have to sacrifice accuracy in one direction to gain accuracy in other directions, or I should say reliability of the signal. And so what this specific device brand did was they tried to analyze, okay, which of the three axes is the least important for us to be able to measure? And they sacrificed the quality of the measurement in that access to gain at, uh, the gain quality or reliability in the other two axes and so if a device if different device developers sacrifice a different axis then you're going to have reduced comparability probably um, and then also just even things like orientation of that accelerometer sensor in the in the device is going to to have an effect and and um, interestingly so i'll just use actigraph as is an example um, different generations of actigraph so they're you know their newest is the gt9x link device 
if you compare raw data from that device to their previous device, the GT3X, they have uh, flipped the orientation of the gravitational signal in at least one of their axes. So if you put the devices side by side on your wrist and you just sit, you know, um, and maybe you move your wrist a little bit to, to get a little bit of variation in signal, some of the device, uh, at least, I think it's one of the device axes will be a flipped sign. So if it's positive in the link device, it's negative in the GT3X device. And so they are, they'll, you know, if you looked at the absolute value, they're probably very similar, but you can't just apply a model from one device to the other because the signal is going to be flipped. And so on the front end, you have to flip the signal to get the, the data to be comparable before you can then apply uh, whatever the analytic model is. And so there's been a lot of learning that's gone along with with some of those things in terms of how, yeah, it, it, we do ultimately need to understand the raw signal that comes from these devices. And there are studies that do that, you know, the shaker table type studies that you've probably read about. That's kind of your most fundamental device validation is if you put these things in an orbital shaker where you know the exact frequency, sorry, a cat's coming by for, uh, for a little love here. Um, where you understand the exact frequency that those things are being shaken and what the orientation of the devices is in those different, you know, as the, as the shaker table is being operated. That's kind of the most fundamental thing that, that you can do for the device itself. And then once you have confirmation that the device is, is uh, acceptably accurate and reliable, then you can start trying to say, okay, we know this raw data is good enough. Now, what do we do with the raw data to derive the meaningful output? or metrics that we want and that's where the model validation then comes in where it's you know is this model predicting calories is it predicting an activity type or an activity posture or an activity intensity those types of things so that's that's step two the the, the sensor itself the device itself has to be sufficiently good before you can get into the modeling yeah i i have the same understanding that most of the manufacturers are using the same components if if the models are about same same, from same year or range, uh, it's it shouldn't be a big difference. And yeah, there's there's usually noise in one channel more than others, and then it depends which way it's been arranged. And of course, if you use it on the wrist, it's different than on the thigh. Uh, so yeah, I think those should be probably communicated better from manufacturers that the researchers would understand which way is the best best to wear and and you mentioned Acticraft and I noticed you have done some papers about cross generational comparability of Acticraft models maybe maybe shortly how how were the how were the results yeah so it's uh the reliable I've had a lot of fun with the reliability studies cuz you have to they're deceptively difficult to do you know, on the one hand, you would think, oh, it's fairly easy. Okay, we have to think about a few different aspects of reliability. If the one person does the exact same activity twice, will a single device tell you the same thing? Or if you have two of the same monitor in the same body location and a person does an activity, will it tell you the same thing? So the first one's uh, intra-monitor reliability or test-retest reliability. The second one would be between-monitor reliability or inter-monitor reliability. So you have to set up ways to try to capture both of those constructs. And so the best that we've been able to do, so for the inter-monitor reliability, we get some really, really good sticky tape and we tape two monitors together. And so, you know, whether you're wearing up the hip or the wrist, you're essentially stacking monitors on top of each other so that when you move, at least the magnitude of movement should be extremely similar. 
and the device orientation as close as you can get it with the tape is going to be is going to be similar but even small variations will affect the data right i mean if we're 1% off in our orientation there's going to be some error that's that's detected or noticed in our statistical analysis that's really just we you know we couldn't perfectly place the devices um, next to each other. Or when you stack devices, you do have an outer device. And so one of them is going to move slightly more than the other, right? Just from a physics, you know, you have a longer lever arm. And so that changes things just a little bit. And so it's hard to, uh, it, it's hard to perfectly get these, you know, devices so that we can do things like cross-generational testing and stuff. Although you do the best you can, right? And, and you accept that, that even the best uh, the best methodological approach will have some at least minor degree of error. So I guess that's that's just a backdrop, right? When, when we're doing these studies, uh, we can't quite perfectly do it, even in the shaker table, right? I mean, you try to set the device orientation exactly the same, and you cushion them in the same way, and there's going to be slight or subtle variations um, probably in those, in those types of analyses. I, I think the end story is that... Um, between devices, so if you're looking between devices of even of the same generation, so two Actigraph link monitors placed one on top of the other, you will see subtle differences in the uh, both the raw acceleration signal as well as if you were to convert to something like activity counts. Now, I, I couldn't tell you the percentages offhand. I mean, it's single-digit percentage differences. It's probably 2 to 5% um, different. And that's not insignificant in, in some cases, but what happens is when you when you try to so that's like the raw signal, right, or, or minute level data, whatever, some short short epoch duration. When you collapse that across a day and look at total calories burned or total moderate to vigorous activity, I don't think we've seen very many cases in which those differences appear meaningful. So any subtle differences at the at the short you know micro level kind of wash out over the course of a day. And so um, within a certain device and a certain device um, generation, seems like they work pretty well. And that seems to be true both at the hip and at the, at the wrist when we've done our analyses. The further, so when you start looking at different generations, you do start to see bigger differences. So if we look at a Link versus a GT3X versus uh, a GT3X Plus versus a GT3X, you'll start seeing slightly bigger differences um, not again, not huge differences. And when you look at it over the course of a day, it seems to wash out uh, for the most part. And so those are, are typically comparable within at least a certain extent. We have seen certain certain metrics are more comparable than others. So, you know, if you just look purely at the raw data, that's one thing. But if you derive activity counts from that, or if you do, uh, you know, some of the some of the non-count based things like ENMO, the Euclidean norm minus one, if you uh, calculate that from the raw data or the mean amplitude deviation, some of those other ways of, of getting you know, a different type of metric from the raw data, those aren't necessarily affected the same way. Um, you know, ENMO is probably the most common non-count based metric. We actually found that that metric was less comparable across devices or across device generations than counts were or than the mean amplitude deviation was and you know we i'd have to get into my paper to look at some of the details for why we suspected that that might be um but it again it's it seemed to be the case that that metric was slightly less comparable across device generations 
So, you know, you can't just assume that if the raw data is good, then everything else will be good. Or if counts is good, then Enmo will be equivalently good or, or those types of things. Yeah, important important studies that you have been been doing, and and how do you see like you are on the research side? I I I'm wearing also the manufacturers side hat uh, hat here with the podcast hat, and how how do you see the collaboration? What could we do better with researchers that it would take the field forward? We would get things validated faster, and and so on. Yeah, I, I mean, first of all, let me just say I love that idea—the idea of of working together—and that's that's true whether we're talking about different research groups within academia, but also between industry and academia. I think I think working together serves to benefit everybody. Um, so I think you know transparency is one of the things, just an acknowledgement of how certain maybe metrics are derived or certain, you know, like these devices all collect raw data, but when you download the data, is it truly raw or has some filtering been applied to it? It's not always clear when you're when you're taking data from a device. Um, when there are firmware changes, what are those changes? And is there any evidence that it does or does not affect the data that we're getting from the devices? And so I think some transparency from the industry, you know, from the manufacturers, from the companies themselves on how if and how those things may affect data would be would be an important thing. I think discussion, uh, a two-way discussion between manufacturers and academics, or, or I guess the researchers in general, about what each side is hoping to get from their devices would be helpful in the validation uh, in the validation process, right? And so, you know, man, manufacturers certainly have certain goals, um, and will have certain knowledge of how the devices work and what the strengths and limitations are. Researchers are your key external validators, right? And so having an understanding of, of what the company hopes the device can be used for will allow the researchers to better calibrate their protocols to make sure they're testing the things that the device is meant for versus, you know, maybe it's intended for a certain population only. You know, there are certain devices or for certain activities only. And so it would be, I shouldn't say unfair, but you wouldn't expect the device to do as well for things it's not intended for. Right, and so not to overplay some of those things in cases where um, clear, very clearly, the device was meant for some some things, and so let's focus on those first and make sure it works for those. And then, you know, yeah, there there may be reasons to look beyond what the original intent for the device is to see what other applications it has, but not to make those the first things that get that get validated or looked at with a device or a new algorithm or some of those types of things. So those are those are just a couple uh, a couple thoughts. Yeah, no, good, good points, and I think the transparency is is very important. How how would you do it? The transparency, you know, there there can be a lot of small small changes. There might be the battery have changed in the device, which should be same, but it's it's a different type that you cannot get anymore. That and and you know, small small things here and there. So you don't want to make it too complicated that you always change the model number if. If the change is something that you don't think it has an effect, but should it be some open lock that is is logging and and it's it's really accessible, or how how would you do the full transparency? Yeah, it's a really it's a it's a good question, right? It's easy to say we need to be more transparent, and then the details of how you do that practically and and what that means is yeah, it's a, it's a fair it's a fair thing to think about. So 
certainly some kind of a log that would be available, I think would be helpful. So yeah, you know, new man, you know, got batteries from a different supplier starting on this date, firmware update on this date. And these were the, you know, the intended fixes that happened with this. Um, did, yeah, if, when there are new models, was there, you know, was there a new sensor that came from it? Um, maybe some kind of internal validation from the companies to, to say, you know, every, I have no idea the, the, the time frame, but every month, let's say, um, you know, we compared devices from this batch to devices from this batch using this, maybe a very, very simple protocol. You know, we, we sat them down side by side and just made sure that, you know, they, um, were within 3% or I mean, whatever, you know, right. You'd have to make a set of things, but that would at least give some confidence that when you're buying different batches or if you're using the devices, you know, before and after software or firmware updates that they are in fact sampling the same way or, or close enough to where we can feel confident that if you see a change in someone's activity over time, it's a true change versus just a difference in the way that the device is working. Right. So some, some things like that, I think, I think would be helpful ways to help ensure that the devices are working as intended. You know, I'll, I'll just say, um, I think research grade devices or device companies that are meant for researchers do a better job of this than the consumer wearables. You know, I think about things like Fitbit or Apple Watch. They push through updates all the time, sometimes without notification, sometimes without any context for what what those updates do you know sometimes the updates especially on when we first started doing validations with these devices it would have been what eight years ago they'd make massive changes to their algorithms and there would be no backward compatibility you know you couldn't go and reinstall the previous firmware to continue to try to collect data because they just pushed this new thing through and now all of a sudden it's you know i mean some of the some of the changes were massive that they would do you know there was um just to give you one example that happened to our lab and we actually we lost this data forever was um we were interested in it was fitbit and they have a what's called an active minutes uh metric on their device so you know you get steps and you get calories this active minutes metric was supposed to be minutes of time spent at an, an activity intensity that would contribute toward the, the guidelines, right? So in the U.S., that's 150 minutes a week of moderate to vigorous activity. So this active minutes metric was to help, supposed to help look at progress toward that. Though the government guidelines until 2018 suggested that that had to happen in at least 10-minute bouts. And so it would only count that metric if things happened for 10 minutes at a time, right? And so... Um, we started this study and, you know, so you're doing these activity protocols and the active minutes, you had to make sure if you wanted to assess that, you had to make sure the activity durations were long enough to where that would get captured. And so at one point during the study, they changed that in accordance with the updated guidelines that say any minutes are good and any minutes that can contribute, it doesn't have to happen in bouts. And all of a sudden our active minutes metrics just shot up because now it's counting every minute rather than just the extended bouts. And there was no way of going back in analyzing the old data using the new firmware. And conversely, we couldn't analyze the new data with the old firmware. And so we we gave up that, that aim of the study because we could no longer compare across time, right? And so that was a huge waste of effort for us on something that we could no longer use. And so it's not, again, I think the research grade companies are doing a far better job of, of transparency and, you know, n not uh, making big changes often 
to where it, it substantially changes the way that, that the devices function. And I think the consumer wearables, um, because they're pushing the field and they're trying new things and, you know, they're, they're more centered on, um, what the consumers want than what the researchers need to be able to do their stuff. We have a lot more problems with those devices overall. Yeah, maybe, maybe word of caution for other researchers to think. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes. So be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.